Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of God. Good morning, church family. I want to pray one more time. Would you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, we just want to pause in the stillness of this moment and acknowledge that you are good. We've been saying thank you to you during our corporate prayer time. And again, I just want to say thank you above all for the gift of Jesus. Salvation through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Adoption into your family. For grace. Future grace, but also grace for this moment right now. We thank you. This Advent season, as we are remembering the first coming of Jesus and looking forward to the second coming. I know that there are... Many of us in this room who are carrying heavy, heavy burdens, Lord, life has it's just been hard. And there's a lot of pain all around us in our community. And so I just want to pray as we're starting this sermon series called Light in the Dark that your spirit would transform us by the renewal of our minds through your word to help us become a people who can live with hope and with joy and with resilient, steadfast, faithful love, even in the midst of the darkness, because we trust in Jesus. Please help us to see Jesus more clearly and make the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ more precious to us this morning. God, I just want to humbly ask for your help. These scriptures that we just heard are incredibly deep and powerful, and I ask that you would help me to speak with clarity and with an anointing power from your Holy Spirit. Help us all to have attentive minds to receive from you, Would you renew our minds by grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ enables us to face the reality of darkness in our world without falling into despair. We can face the darkness with joy, with hope. Facing the darkness is the opposite of Ignoring the darkness, pretending the darkness does not exist, hiding ourselves through compulsive consumption, hiding, hiding ourselves from the darkness, through constant stimulation, through constant entertainment, ignoring the fact of evil and sin and death. We don't have to do any of that. We can face the reality of evil and pain and sin and death in the world, sickness. The world is not as it is supposed to be. So we don't have to live in a fantasy. We can be realists. We can face the truth, but we can face it with joy and with hope. Why? Because of verse five of our text today. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. I want to spend a few minutes thinking about this biblical image of the darkness today. This image is a very important and frequently recurring 
image throughout the Bible, and in particular in the Gospel of John. So everybody say the darkness. I'm going to read to you a few of the times that this word, this image, appears in the Gospel of John. You can just listen for a moment. John chapter 3, we just heard verse 16 a moment ago about God's love, but listen to what verse 19 says. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. There is hope, there's wisdom, there's truth in Jesus Christ, but so often human beings are running away from that truth that would save us because we would rather persist in our sin. It's part of the mystery of evil, the mystery of the human condition. And John chapter 8, listen to what Jesus says. Verse 12, our Lord says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We don't have to walk in the darkness. In Jesus, we can walk in the light, but if we don't walk in Jesus, we're going to keep stumbling in the darkness. That's the imagery that pops up in John chapter 8. Listen to this. Excuse me, John chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus has been speaking to people who are rejecting him, his enemies, and he's really pleading with them, saying, don't continue in the darkness. You don't have to do it. Come to the light. Come to the light while you still have time. And then he says, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that for a second? You're wandering around in the darkness. You don't know where you're going. I've had this experience, and it's a mild form, in my house many times. Kids are in bed. The lights are out. It's dark. i got to get a drink of water or something. And I walk through my house. And if anybody has children, you know that your house becomes a minefield at night. So you step on Legos, which are way sharper than they look. And you hit your shins on toy horses. And you're wandering around, banging your head into stuff. I, I literally have bruises and gashes in my body right now. I can show you from this phenomenon. But that's a mild form. That's a mild form. And that sense of disorientation and danger uh, can come in forms that are no laughing matter. And Jesus is just diagnosing the human condition. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. But then a few verses later in John twelve forty six, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That word whoever is a wonderful word in John's gospel. Everybody say whoever. whoever. That's free grace to any sinner who repents and comes to Jesus Christ. If right here, right now, you're drowning in darkness today. What it says is whoever believes, all you have to do is open your heart to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. He can give you forgiveness and hope and peace with God. But we got to face this fact that Jesus keeps using this image of darkness. It shows up twice in John chapter 1 verse 5. And Jesus is trying to get us to think about what it's like to live in a broken world. As I said a moment ago, he's trying to get us to imagine the human condition as stumbling around, wandering in the darkness. We're going to talk about what that word symbolizes in a moment. In Scripture, I'll just tell you, it's, it's a frequent symbol for evil and for chaos. 
We'll talk about evil and chaos in a moment. But first, I just want to say the reason Jesus is using this visually evocative image is because he wants us to imagine it. So we've got to use our imaginations. Kids are sometimes good at that. Abigail and Elijah, my kids, Tatiana over here, they read a lot of books. They've got good imaginations. We all got to find our, our inner imagination this morning. As I was reflecting on this this morning, I was thinking about the fact that it's probably hard for some of us modern folks, especially those of us who have lived in cities our whole life, to really imagine, uh, imagine what it's like to wander in darkness. Anybody besides me, a city person, been in a city your whole life? We don't really know about some of the darkness in the same way that the people Jesus was originally talking to would have thought about it. The electric light didn't become commercially viable until, what, 1879, something like that, was when Thomas Edison came up with his version of the electric light bulb. And so when we think of darkness, we think of images like the one that's about to pop up on the screen behind me. This is a 1921 etching by the famous American artist Edward Hopper. I really like Hopper's paintings because they're always evoking the experience of loneliness and alienation in the midst of crowded urban environments. He himself lived in New York and then, you know, 1921, he did this etching. So he experienced what it was like to be surrounded by people in the urban jungle and yet to be lonely, to feel alone. This little etching is called Night Shadows. But as you can see, the reason it's called Night Shadows is because even at night, There's a lot of light and the light makes shadows. If you're in real darkness, there's no shadows. Because everything's dark. You follow me here? So this image evokes loneliness. It evokes alienation. But about a year after Thomas Edison invented commercially viable versions of the light bulb, they put them up on streets in New York City, the city that never sleeps. So even if you're walking around at night in New York, you're not really in the darkness. That's what we might think of when we hear darkness. But I want to ask you to imagine something different, a different level of darkness. Jared is going to put up on a screen behind us a picture of a cave. Now, this isn't actually a dark cave because that would just be a black slide. So somebody use a flashlight or a flash on their camera to take this picture. Um, But just imagine the moment after that flash. It's pitch black, but this is still the reality. Can you imagine wandering around in that cave in the pitch darkness? There's... Holes you could fall into everywhere. There's stalagmites and stalactites you can bump your head on. You can trip, you can fall. Now imagine getting stuck and getting lost in there. If you can avoid having a panic attack while imagining it, please imagine that. I can help you because as I was thinking about this this week, I uh, found a story about a a guy in southwestern France named Jean-Luc, who had the unfortunate experience of doing just that, getting lost in a pitch black, dark cave. What happened was this. On December 18th, 2004, Jean-Luc was feeling depressed. He was feeling discouraged. He told his wife he needed some alone time. He got in his Land Rover and he got a bottle of liquor and he started driving. Bad idea, bad combination. But he wanted to drown his sorrows. He ended up driving to abandoned mushroom farms Uh, which I didn't even know was a thing, really. But this mushroom farm was really a a network of caves. It was originally a chalk mine and then became a mushroom farm that was dug into the rock deep beneath the earth, um, and but then had been abandoned for many years. So he wanders into that thing with a bottle of liquor and a flashlight. You can probably imagine where this is going. And he wanders in, 
and he goes a little too far and he's having a hard time finding his way out and the light starts dimming and now he's panicking plus his blood alcohol is elevated his judgment isn't very good and the light goes all the way out that happened on December 18th 2004 fast forward to December or excuse me January 21st 2005 34 days later 34 days later he was saved by a teacher strike. Teachers were on strike in, in France, and so school was canceled. So three teenagers, being teenagers, went to the abandoned mines that were supposed to be off limits to the public. And they took their gear and their flashlights and went to explore this thing. But as they went inside, they saw the Land Rover. And they called the police. And within about 90 minutes, the police were there, and they sent a whole team Tons of police officers with all their gear and they found him pretty quickly because get this. He was in a little I don't know what you call it, like a little corridor of this cave, only 600 feet from where he could have found the opening. But he'd been wandering for five weeks and couldn't find his way out when they found him. He was skin and bones. He'd lost over 40 pounds. He was very pale. He'd grown out a beard. He was very disheveled, and yet, amazingly, he was alive. The story has a happy ending and a terrifying middle, kind of like the story of human history. The happy ending is, after wandering around the darkness for a whole time, the rescuers come, for a long time, the rescuers come with their flashlights, and they're shouting out Jean-Luc, and they're crying for him, and he hears the, the word, and he Sees the light. This, this is a good preaching illustration. You can just see how this would work right here. And then all of a sudden, can you imagine what it would feel like to hear your name called after five weeks in the darkness? And then he comes out. Not only does he survive, but in the mercy of God, a thing God, God used this near-death situation to kick his drive, uh, survival instinct into gear. And he overcame his depression and came out of this much stronger than when he went into the situation, which was amazing. But in between those two things... 35 days in the darkness. How did he survive? He found some old tarps. This is December. He found some old tarps that he wrapped around himself to keep himself uh, as warm and dry as possible in that cave. He found places where there was water trickling down the edges of the rock. And he would stick his face on that rock and suck as many drops of water up as he could. He crawled around on his hands and knees in the mud and found old pieces of wood and clay that he ate. Perhaps there was some old mushroom debris mixed in that, giving him nutrition. That's how he survived. Now, if you can avoid the panic attack, imagine yourself in Jean-Luc's place. Wandering around. Stubbing your toes, hitting your head. The flashlight is all the way out. Days pass. Can you imagine the sense of helplessness? Perhaps the sense of despair that might creep in. One of the articles I read about this guy's experience was written by an author named Will Hunt. The title of the article was Getting Lost Makes the Brain Go Haywire. And that's what the article's about. You can start to lose your mind. Jesus is saying that's the human condition apart from Christ. That's the experience. So if you can imagine that now, now what does Jesus mean by that? He obviously is not talking about an absence of physical light. We said a second ago, the image of darkness represents evil and chaos, evil and chaos. Let's talk about both of those ideas. Evil names the tragedy that occurs when God's free, rational creatures turn away from God, the ultimate good and exalt to the place of ultimate importance in their lives, lesser goods. 
in itself, that doesn't sound like that bad of a thing. But the problem is when our loves become disordered and we start exalting lesser things to the ultimate place in our lives and we forget about God, the ultimate good, that disordering of our loves has the power to destroy our lives, has the power to destroy other people. Evil in this sense can look like the big evils we describe of human history. Slavery, my love for power, my love for wealth becomes inordinate to a degree that I'm willing to dehumanize and oppress other people and we get slavery, ethnic cleansing, the Holocaust, horrible evils. Or we could talk about what this looks like in our own hearts more intimately. That stubborn selfishness inside each one of us. Loving our own comfort more than we care about the other people around us. These are the kinds of little evils that mess up our families, don't they? Things that rob us of sleep at night. The things that tear apart our relationships. Evil is not a creative force. Really, evil isn't a thing at all because everything that exists was created by God. Evil is a name for the twisting of God's good creation. The corruption of it. Evil can be and has frequently been imagined by Christian theologians as a parasite. I thought about getting a picture of that for you, but I didn't want to gross you out too much. You know what a parasite is? Here's a dictionary definition. An organism that lives in or on an organism of another species, its host, and benefits by deriving nutrients at the other's expense. So just picture the tick on the dog. I found the picture, but I spared you putting it on the screen. The tick on the dog. The tick gets its life from sucking life out of the dog. Evil is parasitic. God's creation is good, but evil sucks the life out of God's creation. It has the power to destroy. Evil is a kind of nothing that carries within it the seeds of annihilation. It's anti-God and therefore anti-God's creation. Now, I'm talking in kind of abstract terms here, but let's just get specific. What might this look like? And I'm not going to talk about any of those things we think of as big evils, uh, like ethnic cleansing or slavery or the Holocaust. I'm not even going to talk about some of the social ills that we find frequently in our own community, like alcoholism or child abuse or any of those kind of things. I just want to imagine what happens if you love your job too much? What happens if you you get too much of your identity out of work? Now, question. Let's do a little theology of work Q&A. Is the desire to do creative work that brings good into the world, is that a good desire? Yes, it is. Work is a good gift from God. Part of what it means that we're made in the image of God is that we're made to do creative good work in the world. That's great. But what happens if you take that good thing and you exalt it to the highest place in your life? You see, every evil desire is just a desire for something good that has become twisted and disordered. Well, if you start loving your job and your success in your job more than you care about the people who you work for or you work with or who work for you. Now, this workplace becomes dysfunctional and destructive and stressful, doesn't it? What if you start caring about your job success, and your career success more than you care about your family, your husband or your wife or your kids? And now you're frantically working too much to try and fill some void in your own heart and you're. Relationships at home are falling apart. 
The thing about it is, if you climb that ladder all the way to the top of job success, what you will find is the same thing you'll find at the top of every ladder that you might climb other than God, which is nothing. If you became the most successful career person that you can imagine, you the most reached the pinnacle of success in your career, it would not satisfy your soul, would it? We were made for more. And so this hunger to find significance through doing something important in the world. And I'm not just talking about a bad career. You could be a missionary who's compelled by your desire to feel significant. And so now you're doing all this good stuff to try and feel like your life has meaning. But you start exalting that love for creative work more than God, more than people. And it consumes you. And all of a sudden you're falling apart psychologically. Your marriage is struggling. You're Relationship with your kids has dried up. You've lost the heart of the work. You're facing emotional burnout. It's destructive. You see what I'm saying here? That's evil. And it's pervasive in the world. It's all around us. It comes from when creatures turn away from God. Now, chaos is another thing. Everybody say chaos. Chaos. In some ways, chaos is even more frustrating because chaos refers in the scripture to These unpredictable, destructive forces in the world, they don't threaten God, but they threaten vulnerable creatures like us. But the reason I say it could feel almost more frustrating is because when it strikes you and the consequences are devastating, you can't figure out who to be mad at. You don't know who to blame. I could just say a little word like cancer. Or car accidents. Or tsunamis. Or... The market takes a downward plunge and 500 people are out of work. Chaos. I don't evoke those words lightly because like many of you and here, I'm sure I've lost loved ones to chaos and car accidents. The pain is devastating, but you can't find anybody with malicious intent. It's just a broken world. The world is not as it ought to be. That's what the darkness means. And Jesus is saying something that we all know to be true in our heart of hearts when he says, when you, you sinners are wandering around in the dark, banging your head against stalagmites. That's the human condition. So everybody say darkness. We faced it. We talked about it today. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Christmas is that the darkness doesn't get the last word. The last word belongs to the word who was with God in the beginning. The word through whom God created all things. Let's read once again the first four verses of this text. In the beginning was the word. Everybody say the word. Now, when John talks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. We'll talk about why he calls Jesus the word in a minute. But everybody say that's Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Jesus, before he came to earth and was born of a virgin Uh, Mary, he has always existed as God, the son, God, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, these first couple of verses are pointing us towards this reality that Christians call the Trinity. Everybody say the Trinity. There's one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This text doesn't specifically mention the Holy Spirit, but it does talk about the Father and the Son. Look at it again. Verse one. In the beginning was the word Jesus. 
And the word was with God. Jesus was with God, the father. And the word was God. Jesus was God. He was fully divine. If we fully unpack this biblical doctrine of the Trinity, it carries within it this glorious news that the source and the goal of all reality, the source and goal of all creation is nothing other than the infinite joy and love and life of God. Which means the darkness will not win. The darkness must be temporary. Because this good creation of God can't persist in this evil forever. Now, we got to ask the question, though, why does the text call Jesus the word? Why does it call him the word? And we could spend a really long time. I've read a lot of hundreds of pages on that question over the year. But I just want to give you three simple reasons. Okay. The author of John's gospel, John is is uh, evoking a rich and deep history of biblical literature as well as uh, Jewish literature. And there's three themes here that I want to emphasize today. Jesus is God's creative word. Jesus is God's redeeming word. And Jesus is God's self-revealing word. I'll talk about each of those. Jesus is God's creative word. Jesus is God's redeeming word. And Jesus is God's self-revealing word. First, Jesus is God's creative word. Now, it's clear that this is what John's thinking about when we note the connections between John 1 and Genesis 1. I've got a slide for that, too. Look at this. Three visual aids in one day. Okay, check this out. This is Genesis 1 on the right, John 1 on the left. Look at all the parallels. They both start with this phrase, in the beginning. Everybody say, in the beginning. And then in case you missed it the first time, it comes up again in verse 2 of John 1. He, He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Both emphasize the theme of creation. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So they're both about creation. Both use this imagery of light and darkness. You see, John 2 talks about chaos in the primordial creation. The earth was out without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. John 5, we've quoted several times, uses the word darkness twice. Both talk about light. God said, let there be light. And there was light in Genesis. And in John, we read that the word was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. So there's all these parallels. And the important parallel I want you to see right now is, and God said. See that in, in Genesis? And as we read through Genesis 1, over and over we read, and God said. And we read that God is speaking the world into being. He is creating through his word. And so now in this obvious allusion to Genesis one, John is saying the word through whom the father created the world is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. He's God's creative word. Now, what does that mean when we think about it? Here's what it means. Evil may have smeared the surface of the world, but the world is still God's good creation. This world still belongs to Jesus Christ. One of the deepest and most powerful reflections I've ever read on this is a poem called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins, who is one of my three favorite poets. And in this poem, which celebrates the beauty of God's world, the the poem starts by saying the the world is charged with the grandeur of God and and it celebrates the beauty of nature, the beauty of creation. But then in the middle of of the poem, Hopkins, who was a devout Christian, starts reflecting on the fact that anywhere you look around in the world, you find evil and sin and pain everywhere. 
You can't find pure goodness anywhere. Everything is marked by sin. But then he says this. And for all this, nature is never spent. There is the dearest freshness deep down things. Now, I want you to think about that phrase. There is the dearest freshness deep down things. What that means is as you look at the world, Satan might try to convince you that all there is is evil and darkness. But with faith, with a kind of faith that is also defiance and resistance to the power of darkness, we say this is God's world. It may be corrupted on the surface, but it's God's good creation. And so we can enjoy it. We can give thanks for it. And we can hope he's going to make it new, which leads us to the second point. Jesus is God's redeeming word. Now, we could read through the Old Testament and find many places in which the word of God is personified as God's creative agent in the world who's come to fix the broken world, to redeem it and make everything new. Everybody say redemption. Redemption is about healing and fixing God's good creation, which has been broken by sin. One of the many passages that you could read, I'm not going to read it right now, but you could study it this week, is Isaiah chapter 55, especially verses 10 through 13. And in this passage, Isaiah is talking about Israel, who's living in exile, being disciplined for their sins. And Isaiah says this, he says, just as when God sends the rain on the world, it causes a barren world to bear fruit and spring and be filled with life so that creation is renewed. So God is sending out his word into the world and his word is going to go into a barren world and recreate it, renew it, fill it with life. And when that happens, you're going to come back from exile and you're going to sing for joy as all creation sings. The word is the agent of redemption. And what John is now saying in his gospel is that the same word through whom the Father created the world, has come to make all things new. As a matter of fact, St. Athanasius, the great Christian theologian of the 4th century and pastor, wrote a, a really important book called On the Incarnation. And right at the beginning of the book, he says this. I'm going to read you a quote. The first thing, the first fact you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the selfsame word who made it. From the beginning, the word through whom God created all things has now come to renew all things. And he's doing it through his incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas. And he's doing it especially through his death and resurrection. You see, on the cross, here's what Jesus does. He looks darkness in the face and says, do your worst. Jesus takes upon himself All of our evil, all the evil of human history and all of its consequences, all the forces of Satan and sin and chaos and destruction come down on Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb of God. And he bears it and he exhausts the power of evil. And then on the third day, he rises victoriously from the grave and evil. The darkness is defeated by the power of his resurrection. Now, now that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the first advent. But we're looking forward to the second advent. Now we live at the time between the times. There's evil, there's darkness in the world. But because Jesus, God's redeeming world, has come once and died on the cross for our sins, we can be confident that just as he died and rose again to defeat evil, he will return in glory to get rid of evil forever. And the darkness will be dispelled. Finally, Jesus is God's self-revealing word. 
in a couple of weeks, right before Christmas, if you come back, we'll talk about a few verses later, and, and it's going to include John 1.18, but I'm just going to read it to you. I'm reading it in the NIV right now. Here's what it says. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, what this verse is saying is something that is taught in a variety of ways, many places in the New Testament, which is this. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And what I'm trying to say is that's why Jesus gets called the word. That's one of the reasons, because he is God's self-revealing word. I want you to think about the fact that as persons, we reveal ourselves and we initiate relationships through our words, don't we? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So sometimes I'll get with one of my kids. We, we play together as a group all the time. But if I want to do some bonding, there's a park right by my house. And I'll grab just Abigail, just Elijah, just Zoe. And we'll go walk around the house and just talk. Because in that one-on-one er, unhurried time of talking, we're just talking about whatever comes to mind. But really, we're revealing our hearts to one another. When Candace and I were dating We'd go on these long dates and talk for hours, and sometimes we'd play this question game where you'd just go back and forth answering questions. And you could ask about anything. Ask about your childhood, ask about your dreams, ask about your hopes, ask about your fears. And in answer to that question, words were pouring forth, but what they were revealing was our hearts and establishing a relationship. What we're trying to say here is, if you want to know the heart of God, look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He is God's self-revealing word. And that's very important for those of us who are stumbling around in the darkness of this present age, to use a phrase of St. Paul. For some of us, the idea of Jesus conquering evil and death and sin forever, we believe it, but it feels so distant that it's hard for us to imagine it. I mean, can we be honest about that? Like there's days in which it's like, I know Jesus is going to conquer evil, but it's hard for me to picture that. It's hard for me to feel like that's real because people were dying all around me. I haven't seen anything else. For you, this word may be the most important word you need to hear. Even when it's hard to believe, what Jesus shows us about God is this. When you're stumbling in the darkness and it hurts, or maybe it doesn't even hurt anymore, you're just numb. What Jesus shows us is that God is near to us with compassion for us in our pain. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of love and he promises to us by his grace and justice. He will return to make all things new. When that happens, he will once and for all wipe every tear from our eyes. But in the meantime, we are not alone. Jesus is God with us. God's word of mercy and compassion for us in the midst of the darkness. He's God's word of light. He's God's word of life. And church, I want to. In today with this thought, we all together as the church can hear this word because this business of hoping in Jesus in the midst of the darkness isn't something that we have to do alone. We just finished this little series called We Are the Church, and I want to connect the dots between the two. See, we don't have to try and muster up hope and courage by ourselves. The Christian church is a community of hope. I want that phrase to Stick into our minds. So let's say it. Everybody say a community of hope. We're a community of hope because we're the community that's called together by the word of Jesus Christ, by his grace. We're all sinners. We all deserve judgment and death. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Amen. 
And he came back to life for us. And he promised to come again, not only so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God, but so that we could be reconciled to one another and become this community filled with the spirit, learning to love one another as a community of hope. We quote John 1, 5 as an act of corporate and collective joy, celebration and resistance. Hear the verse one more time. The light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. Maybe we should just read it together as a community right now. Let's read it, y'all. You see it in your bulletin or in your Bible? Let's read it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We quote that with joy because we're saying no matter how rough this day or week or month is, Jesus is good and this is his world. We quote it with hope because we're saying no matter how challenging the work of life or ministry may be, even when we feel like we're just trying to survive day by day, we know that's not our destiny. Jesus is going to make all things new. And we quote it as an act of resistance because what we're saying is as a community of hope, we reject despair. And what we're about day by day is receiving and reflecting the light of Christ. Which means every time we share the good news of Jesus, every time we mentor some kid in our community, every time we go to work and everybody's stressed out and acting crazy and we respond with love and kindness. Every time we hang out with our family, it's dysfunctional and everybody's complaining and we just act nice. We're shining some light. Every time we do something crazy, like say, let's support getting teachers in every public school and supporting them and getting reading buddies in every public school and start an evangelistic ministry in every public school. We try crazy stuff like that because we're resisting the despair that could take over our community. When we start a health coalition and people come in because they're sick and some doctor or nurse or volunteer treats them with dignity and respect, we're receiving and we're reflecting the light of Jesus so that more and more people can get drawn into this community of hope. But we do it not because we're these stoic people saying we can survive and keep by our willpower doing what's right, even in the midst of darkness. We're doing it as people who heard the word calling our name when we were lost in that cave. Jesus came and he called you by name and he says, I'm bringing you out of here. So now we can say no matter how dark the world lives, the darkness is on the surface. There is the dearest freshness deep down things. Jesus will win. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to remember and abide in this truth all week and all year until we see Jesus face to face. Help us, Lord. If there's any here who have not taken that first step of trusting Jesus Christ, I pray this would be the day of salvation. And for every Christian here, No matter what's going on in our lives outside of this day, I pray that in this moment, as we go to the Lord's table, you would fill us with grace and joy and hope. Make us a community of hope that can shine your light into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.